Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today's guest is Alastair Tulloch of Keith Tulloch Wines. Alastair has a business degree from the University of Newcastle and is currently studying applied science, both wine and viticulture, at Charles Sturt University. Alastair came recommended to us by a previous podcast guest, Karin Stark, for the work he's doing in sustainability and carbon sequestration. Thanks, Karin. This whole area is such a hot topic right now with a lot of big claims out there. So it was really exciting to talk to a grower who's actually on the journey to carbon neutral. In this episode, Alistair shares what made him go down the path to carbon neutral, what practices and technologies they're using and what is and isn't working, and the financials. What are the expensive parts and where are the returns coming from? Alistair starts with an overview of the family business. I work at Keith Tulloch Wine, which is my father's business. I've worked there pretty much my entire life. He's a fourth generation grape grower in Hunter Valley wine country. So we have an estate in Pecolben. We farm there about 50 tonnes of grapes. And then we have a production winery on site as well, using the grapes from the vineyard there, as well as a couple of other vineyards, some which we own, some which we manage, and others which uh, we just buy the fruit. So yeah, it's pretty full time for a small family business. It's a pretty big operation, but there's always something to do. Keith Tulloch is certified as a carbon-neutral winery, the first, actually, in the Hunter Valley. But how did Alistair, working there, see this opportunity and realize that the business needed to change? The reason that sustainability is, is really key to the way I view agribusiness is because viticulture and grape growing is such a sensitive style of farming, such a sensitive crop. And we've been able to track and watch the changes in the climate and the warming effect in terms of the growing season on our vineyards and in even my grandfather's vineyards, going back with some of the records I have, right back to the 1950s and 1960s. And we've been seeing since uh, the mid-1980s this really gradual moving forward of the date of harvest, which is actually linked further ahead in the growing season when the vines come out of dormancy and their bud burst. It's moving further forward each year because our winters are just disappearing slowly but surely. And that rate of warming has really started to increase and the shift forward of our harvest dates has really increased in the last decade. And more and more, I I wanted to do something about it rather than just watching it. You would have seen years and years of that data. Was there a moment where you said, right, like we're going to actually do something about it? Yeah, it was really through the 2017-2018 growing seasons when we just had temperatures that were unbelievable, sort of 47, 48 degrees Celsius. And after those years... It wasn't just the single days, but like prolonged heat waves. We had to invest in a huge amount of money in rolling out irrigation across vineyards, which were 50 years old, had never needed irrigation before. But just due to these heat waves that we were seeing and the the change in these maximums and the the frequency of the heat waves, we started to route this irrigation. And I'm there going like this. We're we're looking at the warming which we've seen now and you know, how's this picture going to look 20, 30 years down the track? So there was this moment where, you know, in the wine industry, we've seen this problem for a long time. There was this moment where it just kind of 
was really like clear to me that this warming trend and and the issue we have with the changing climate and viticulture it's got a really bad endpoint and i started speaking publicly more about the effects of climate change in viticulture and and in grape growing and then the effects in winemaking and i wanted to make sure that we were doing everything on farm that we could so that i wasn't just complaining about it but i was actually doing something what was the conversation like with your family were they like-minded to do something as well yeah, well, I'm lucky that in in terms of the way that I see I'm chatting about climate change, there isn't really a generational divide in in most grape growers I've talked to, just given how, how clear the issue is. So when I talked to my parents, they were really positive about the idea of, of doing things. The thing was getting past then the, the idea that our small change wasn't going to make a difference because they're being realistic and saying, like, you know, reducing our carbon footprint or eliminating our carbon footprint is not going to change the, the heat wave. It's not going to change these. But I really wanted to be part of solutions. And the other thing is that in when I go into the supermarket in, in, in my own personal life, I, I try and find sustainable products. I try and look for sustainable products. And I know a lot of people that do the same. And if there aren't the options on the shelf, people kind of pick the best worst option. So for me, being that sustainable option wasn't just a good thing that people could reduce their carbon emissions by buying a, a carbon neutral product. But I know how much people are looking for products like that as well. So it made good marketing sense as well. This idea of being carbon neutral was the start of a journey for Alistair, a journey that would lead to some big changes in the vineyard and at the winery. Some were changes that consumers would see, some were experiments that have yet to work out, and others just made good business sense. But when Alistair started out, he really didn't know where he'd end up. We started on the carbon neutrality because, first of all, I was just interested to figure out and assess what our footprint was and then see about how I could go reducing it. It wasn't looking to be carbon neutral. It was just kind of, you know, it was just kind of seemed like something really interesting to do. I mean, at the time, we were pretty happy with the way the farm was running. We were happy with the grape quality. We were happy with the yields. So we weren't really looking too hard at things like the soil carbon and things we'll get onto later. But it just became something really obvious when I was looking for ways to link the business's carbon neutrality to soil health. And there are some parts of the vineyard inputs like synthetic fertilizers um, and their release of nitrous oxide, which is a it's not carbon footprint, but greenhouse gas footprint. And and we include those emissions, convert them to CO2 equivalents, and that's a part of our carbon footprint for our business. So what did it feel like to take the first step and go down the path toward being carbon neutral? I was kind of scared at first because when you like pick the grapes and then you, you ferment them, like the fermentation releases huge amounts of CO2. I think the amount is about six liters of CO2 for one liter of wine. So proportionately, I was like, our footprint's going to be massive. It actually didn't turn out that way. And it seems really obvious when you point it out, but every single molecule of carbon, every single atom of carbon that's released from the fermentation is actually sequestered by the plants in that growing season. You know, given its perennial horticulture, most of the carbon is stored in the woody parts of the trunk, in the canes and the leaves, in the fruit that gets left behind after we've finished pressing it, and, and even the alcohol that's in, in the wine. So the carbon footprint wasn't as massive as I thought it was, and it was mostly linked to things like electricity use, so some of the fertilizers in the vineyards. 
and then annoyingly enough transport and glassware which is something which has been really hard to reduce beyond what we've done the last couple of years did you get in a consultant to do that and and kind of do that what i think is called a life cycle assessment and how how long did it take and you don't have to say in exact figures but i imagine growers listening are going to wonder like roughly what did that cost if you're willing to share yeah um so we did have experts come in to help us because just going through your business and looking at every single item and calculating its uh, greenhouse gas emissions is, is tricky the first time without help. Finding accurate information and even knowing some things to look for, like going around and accounting all of your greenhouse gases from refrigerant gases, for example, or from the amount of waste that's going to landfill. These things that don't really strike you as really obvious the first time around you do them, but once you've got the frame of mind, they start to be easier. And so, yeah, we used a consultant who basically showed us the carbon accounting and, like you said, the life cycle assessment. So we have two different types of carbon neutrality for our business, actually. One is the products, which is like a bottle of wine, and that has its life cycle assessment from the moment that the first grapes are picked, includes the glassware and the caps and the labels and all all of the inputs we put into it, and includes getting it to the customer. And then in terms of the organizational carbon neutrality that's our other sort of form of carbon neutrality that includes just your day-to-day operational overheads and and things like getting to and from work in the cars uh the sort of emissions we'll use to go and fly and market the wines and then things like running the tractors on site and using those fertilizers and things like that so they are two different things to get through and and some of them as we're saying before they're not the most intuitive but getting the accounting side done is actually not expensive. Um, you can get an accountant to, to do this life cycle assessment with you for just a couple of grand. It's, it's, it's not really a huge expense. And even offsetting any emissions that you can't avoid or that you can't sequester on farm isn't that expensive. What is expensive is going through the more rigorous auditing and certification that goes to the level we've achieved where we're certified by the Australian government because they're just trying to make sure that that is a bulletproof level of certification. So once you get to that level, there's there's a lot more financial involvement. <laughs> and are there tiers of it? So like you, is it is it a tier of claims where you can, you get your assessment, you know how much carbon you're emitting, and then you can buy offsets and then you can say something, but to get, are there kind of accreditation one, two, three, and it tiers up in price or how does that work? It's really just the different styles. Like I was saying, there's the the product and the organization. And some people might run an event and decide that that event will be carbon neutral, or they might have a big range of products and decide, you know, we'll have this one carbon neutral product over here uh, that we can sell to customers that are more environmentally friendly, but we don't have to do anything with our other products. It's so interesting. Like you have this, you have this scheme that's, um, good, like as we'll get into, I think good for the vineyard and good for the business and good for the consumers, Mm -hmm. but the people, there's like this middleman making money, making the certificate expensive. But I find it so fascinating that the actual expensive part is the paying for the thing you've already done to get to to get the marketing value of thing you've already done, not doing the thing, which doesn't seem that great. (laughs) Yeah. It's frustrating. Definitely frustrating. Did you know that going in when you, when you kind of did all the work and then you were like, got to the end and we're like, Oh, we we have, now we have to pay for this thing. Or how did that happen? The thing about the financial thing, I guess, is an interesting conversation and and just talking about like the carbon neutrality and and that license fee itself doesn't tell the full story. 
it, and it's just because we knew about the fees for the licensing when we started and, and we knew about the audits that was all kind of laid out to us, even including all of those licensing fees and all of the investments we've made in emissions reduction, we're actually saving so much money through this emissions reduction. And it's mostly because if you are doing the carbon accounting and you're looking not only at where your emissions come from, but then seriously trying to reduce them, you can actually just find all these parts of your operation, which is so wasteful and, and eliminate that waste. So, and that Love means it. in the vineyard and in the winery and in the entire operation of the business. So, yeah, we'll continue on with the story. So you went down this process, got the life cycle assessment, yes. did the offsets, got mm-hmm. the licensing to be able to approve it. And then did you start saying, right, here were areas where we could actually tick boxes to do efficiencies or what happened next? Yeah, so when it comes to like the actual certification of being carbon neutral, it isn't enough just to say that you'll have this carbon footprint and just offset it every single year. That's not really the goal of the certification. I don't think it's really that helpful in, in, in that aspect. It actually involves a plan for emissions reduction consistently across a number of years. And so in the first year, uh, we took out about 20% of our carbon emissions through installation of the solar PV and elimination of synthetic fertilizers was about another 10 or 15%. We changed over to lighter weight glassware, which saved, I think, about 25 tonnes of CO2. So looking at like about 3 or 4% of the, the operational CO2 footprint. And so like th- there was a, lot, a number of things that we could just change straight away. And that was before we were even carbon neutral certified. And on the fertilizers, what did you do instead? Yeah, so... Changing over the fertilizers was actually a really good farming practice and reduced our CO2 footprint massively. Basically, what we do is we're sowing cover crops into the mid rows. So that's between where the grapevines grow. And more recently, we've actually started seeding in cover crops underneath and around the vines themselves in what we call the undervine area and that's having really good effects not just to reduce the amount of fertilizer that we're using it also reduces cost it eliminates the use of herbicide and to do with some of the effects we were talking about with heat waves as the climate's warmed we've actually seen that by keeping this soil underneath the vines covered and greened better retention of soil moisture and cooler temperatures in the vine canopy and on the ground during these heat waves. So the management technique of going to cover crops, which keep the the soil covered and fix nitrogen and fix carbon into both the mid rows and the under under vine has been like a really big transformation in the style of agriculture that we're doing on farm. Was it scary to do that? Because it is pretty different than, you know, going through and and spraying and and get rid of, were you like nervous the first year that like, how's this going to go? What's going to be impact on yield? Yeah, I mean, not just nervous first year, but nervous second and third, because my grandfather's always walking around and he's very old school. (laughs) He doesn't like weeds. He thinks that everything's (laughs) in the The thing about making these changes is that you have to look at the holistic picture. It's not just enough to say, well, your yields may decline slightly because you're also really reducing your inputs. So looking at your amount of dollars you're spending per hectare of farming and your yield uh, per hectare it needs to be kind of relevant and it's it needs you need to fix those two things to one another also we're all going through what has been a pretty incredible drought so you have to take a grain of salt with that as well 
but that said, we have two blocks running, one uh, with the sort of more holistic style, the, the more regenerative style, and one with uh, not using chemical fertilisers but using compost and chicken manure. And when we're using these cover crops, even though there's slightly more competition, we didn't see a change in the yields between those two vineyards. Uh, and actually, in this last season just gone, anecdotally speaking to other growers around the area, our yields were very healthy. Even though they were 50% down on what we'd normally expect, there was people losing 60, 70, 80% of their crop and they had irrigation and they're running a traditional agriculture. So That's such an interesting insight that you, um, so, so tell me if I'm right answer, but you, you moved wholly off of the old practice, but you actually did some R&D within that to see which which kind of fork in the road was actually the best one to go down that kind of approach of, you know, make the switch, but do it with some backup plans or kind of options for how it could actually play out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess going back to my grandfather before, he's a research scientist, a viticultural research scientist before he started planting vineyards. And so for him, controls in studies are really important. (laughs) So all of these things that we've done have been implemented and rolled out over a number of years. Also, you know, me not being the vineyard manager, me having these ideas and and wanting to implement them and linking them into things like our, our carbon neutrality. As a lot of people out there will know, things can be really difficult to change. You change everything at once and and things can really go pear-shaped. I understand that. But going through these incremental changes and talking with family members who have been farming for, you know, 50, 60 years, there's definitely some some to and fro as ideas get passed around. And and I'm really happy to say that that some of these ideas have really worked and changed their mind in how, how we farm. So, Is there anything you've tried that totally didn't work? Yeah, so the, the undervine cover cropping, uh, it worked really well in sandier soils because we used a clover, a white clover, and that was fantastic. It made this nice big blanket of web that suppressed other weeds. You know, you can pull up underneath the vine, it's still moist, the soil. You can see the, the nitrogen that's being fixed and on the roots of the clover, but up in the clay soils, on the red wine soils, Oh my God, it failed so miserably. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like there was there was no coverage. The weeds came in and took over. There was wire weed and cooch everywhere. And my old man was looking at it going like that did that did not work. And so you know, there's there's definitely more work to be done. But we managed to establish the clover, and it's doing an amazing job with about fifty percent of our vineyards. And you know, I'm looking to in- increase that and sow out more clover over the next growing season. I asked Alistair about the possibility of using livestock, like sheep, to manage weeds in the vineyard. Unfortunately, their property isn't set up well for this, but it is something that he's looked at. Yeah, it's that is a great management technique, but unfortunately our property is actually only a section of what used to be a larger vineyard that was split into smaller lots. And so our borderlines are not fences they're just unfortunately where one vineyard ends and another starts so a lot of rows would have to come out to introduce grazing into that um, agricultural system i actually actually uh, went to a agricultural workshop just regarding this weed control and the agricultural scientist who ran it ran about uh, 12 different studies using herbicide like organic alternate herbicide like slasher undervine uh, flaming steaming cultivating mowing 
uh, like like undermined slashing. And at the end of it, he said, actually, I'm kind of embarrassed because the vineyard that we were working on, their control beat every single method that we tried. Um, and their, <laughs> their, their control was a gisting sheep um, in, in the vineyard between harvest and budburst. And when they went and looked at the dollars per hectare that it cost, it was like all of these inputs had operator costs and cost of the um, machinery and stuff, all the, the, in the chemicals and the, the grazing. Uh, was like earning money because they're getting the sheep in adjusting. So, yeah, for the people that can work livestock into a, a viticultural system, uh, it's something that I would love to do, but it's just not practical with our side, unfortunately. Yeah. Someday when we have virtual fencing, then you can uh, add the add the sheep in and you won't need actual fences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look forward to it. After picking off some of the low-hanging fruit for emissions reductions, Alistair started looking at ways to improve biodiversity. I got into the idea of planting, trying to re-establish native trees in some areas of our vineyard which weren't that practical for viticulture, like around the riparian areas. We have like creek lines going through some of the blocks and so that opens up that corridor to potentially planting, trying to re-establish some of the um, native plants which have been displaced obviously somewhat by the viticulture that comes in and creates to a degree a monoculture across the vineyard site. So what I did was I went and started planting trees, native trees that also promoted beneficial insects to the vineyard system Uh, and I planted about 200 by the time that a research scientist uh, from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries gave me a call. Uh, His name is Darren Fay. And he said, this is great and we want to turn this into a bigger trial, a trial that they can track. And so with him, we established about another 300 trees and I've done another planting, about another 100 trees myself. Um, So about 600 trees in total on the property that are specifically aimed at increasing the populations of beneficial insects. And so uh, when we obviously use pesticides for controlling pests in the vineyard that also knocks back all of your beneficials as well apart from setting aside pesticide use uh, potential impacts of that purely looking at the the vineyard landscape the not losing all of your beneficials really just leaves a vacuum later for pests to come back into so what we've looked at is can we increase the populations of these assassin bugs, um, parasitic wasps, lady beetles, the kind of things that are going to eat hoppers, they're going to eat light brown apple moth or vine moth, the kind of things that can really cause serious damage to to crops. Uh, Can we boost their numbers to the right kind of level to to control these pests and and then uh, eliminate pesticide use from our vineyards? So Mm -hmm. that's an ongoing study. But apart from the fact that we get to plant trees and re-establish the flora biodiversity of the vineyard. I think that the fauna and that beneficial insect population is a really exciting thing to be looking into. So what's next for Keith Tullock on this journey towards carbon neutral? Alistair has been looking at other areas of the supply chain, like processing and waste. Most of the other things that we've really been doing are more going to the production end of the wine business. So looking at investment in um, new refrigeration, it's been a massive saver for emissions for us, um, optimising our use of refrigerant, changing our, I guess um, something that's a bit relevant is just um, based from the business. What we're doing there is uh, introducing birds 
so that we can reduce the amount of organic material that's going to landfill. What's especially amazing to me is that they've made all of these changes and reduced their carbon footprint by over 30% in just the last two or three years. But now that the big changes have been made, each incremental improvement will be harder to achieve. It doesn't happen in, in the blink of an eye, but to to slowly work through some of the more minute problems now that we've got to the point where we've reduced these larger emissions and then try and search now within our within our business for suppliers, which are also on a similar vein, we can start rolling over those contracts and replacing suppliers with those that are carbon neutral or lower emissions and see where we go from there. And how do you think about the return on this? If, if you like, if there's any skeptics out there who still think that kind of sustainability stuff is all about either feel good or you have to have heaps of money to do it. How do you think about the return on investment from a financial perspective? So for me, the actual process of becoming carbon neutral has been something that's really good from from both points of view, there's there's the financial point of view because we've seen all of these efficiencies that we can find in our business, all this wastage that we've cut out, and we're still looking at the the yields of the vineyards and being really happy with uh, what we have in the picture of what people around us have seen. So the the actual bare bones finances of becoming carbon neutral has been really positive from our business, from a profitability point of view. The other thing that people have to keep in mind if they're selling discretionary products like wine, like I sell, is that customers really care about this. And so uh, the enthusiasm that's been from our direct sales and the sales in our direct sales has been really, really good. Also, we've started to see really big sales come in from businesses who, who are searching for product lines, they're searching for sort of business-to-business purchases that reduce their carbon footprint. And I think you'll see that as becoming more and more a feature of, you know, the corporate social responsibility that, that may seem a million miles away from on-farm activities that can really influence the demand for these sustainable products. When you have big businesses that set themselves uh, lower emissions targets, they then have to go around and try and find these uh, products. And if you can offer them the product, then you, you're basically walking into a sure thing as, as a supplier. I think that's important to differentiate that from the bare bones finances of being carbon neutral because there's early adopter advantages in doing this right now, which will obviously diminish the more people that are doing it. And I want to see more people do it. And if everybody thinks that they've lost the first mover advantage, then they'll kind of go, nah, don't worry about it. They've got that sale now. That's their thing. It's not like that. It's much more fundamental than that to the business. So that's been, um, it's been really good outcome for, for our business, the visibility of the business. And there's been so many people in the local industry who have been interested in, in getting on board and looking at, at the, you know, not just some of the emissions reduction we're doing, but some of the like on farm activity that we're doing, because, you know, you drive past our vineyards and things look a little bit different to uh, <laughs> our neighbors and uh, <laughs> you know, you know how people are in, uh, yes. in industry. Sometimes they can even peek over and say a thing or two that they think um, maybe that we need to get the weeds under control and you actually walk them through and you go, no, these aren't, these aren't actually weeds growing. This is something we've established here. And they still kind of think you're a bit nuts, but the uh, interesting thing is watching the the outcomes. And more and more people, I think, are 
coming on to this, this style of farming and talking less about yields and talking more about profitability. And, you know, those, those numbers don't lie. Um, <laughs> I think every, everybody wants to reduce their inputs on farm and reduce their exposure to risk. And if you can come up with a system which is a bit more self-managing in some of these ways, but also that's really good for soil health um, and good for sustainable farming, there's, there's a generation of people that are getting on board with it. You make it sound both so obvious to do this and pretty easy. So I'm tempted to ask you, what's either been hard or what do you think prevents others from, from doing this? That's a really difficult question to answer. You know, I think in a general sense, one of the biggest issues with the broader industry of farmers not looking as much about the soil health is because you can see when you look at the spreadsheet of the business, like where money comes from, people look at the land that they have in front of them and they are trying to make a profit off of it. Like that, that's, that's basically the bare bones of it all at the end of the day. And when it comes to things like, um, you know, soiling carbon in the soil, some of the benefits to it, they, they seem sort of, so distant to people in the, the methods of farming that they're doing now and the machinery that they've invested in to, to do that. You know, if you have a huge uh, amount, you, you've invested in a large piece of machinery, uh, that has its life cycle, that has its expected uh, amount of, of use you expect to get out of it. So um, going and changing that midstream can be like financially damaging to people who are expecting to get a return on, on their investment in the machinery that they use, in the processes they use. So it's more than just a, a technical thing. It also goes into, I think, the way that people are running their business and, and the, the equipment that they have to, to do it. At a more macro level, Alistair sees other barriers for farmers, which are also opportunities for innovators and perhaps policymakers. Another thing from, I think, is a larger picture is that this idea that there are lots of businesses in Australia which are seeking to eliminate or offset their carbon emissions. There are very few people who are actually doing this sequestration in Australia successfully. And the one thing is that there is this real uncoupling between carbon sequestration markets. Um, the markets are a bit ad lib, <laughs> to say the least. So what we really need is properly set up carbon markets. We, we need a real carbon market in this country that lets farmers see the value in storing carbon in the soils, increasing organic soil carbon, seeing forested parts of their property as an asset potentially because if there are companies out there, uh, if there are industry out there uh, and now we're looking at the government uh, itself, looking at emissions reduction and eventually reaching carbon, neuro carbon neutral uh, status by some point, whenever that is, um, it is farmers who should stand to benefit the most by seeing value out of carbon sequestration on their lands that's really part of the answer to this big problem. So the joining of these things together, which are uh, on their own, not being monetized properly and pulling together is going to be something that's really massive for Australian agriculture when it eventually happens.
Yes. And hopefully exciting times to um, unlock more of that. But I, I feels like there's a whole groundswell of this. Interestingly, you mentioned the technology and you're actually headed off to, I think, France, is it, to go spend a bunch of time yes. where there's completely no technology? Don't tell me, tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, I'm really excited by this. So um, my partner and I are kind of old enough to do our own thing, but young enough to not have too many responsibilities. I'll be working at a producer in an area called Kurt Roti, about half an hour south of Lyon. The slope of some of those vineyards, to give people a bit of context, is about 40 degrees. So there's no oh tractors. <laughs> there's no tractors, just very strong calf muscles. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, yeah. All of the vines are spaced out metre by metre on wooden stakes. And the, the property I'll be working for is a, is a seven hectare domain and everything is done by hand. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that management works um, because, you know, like you were saying, uh, with technology and the way that we have agriculture in Australia is so mechanised. To see how an agricultural system works completely free of mechanisation, I think is really interesting. Uh, there's a lot that we can learn, a lot that I can learn from sort of witnessing that and seeing the seeing the style. And, you know, they make beautiful wines, so there must be something to it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you learn. And I'm sure it will be a lot of fun as well and probably a bit of work, it sounds like, too. Yeah, yeah, it'll be plenty of work, but, you know, that's it's one thing about the wine industry is and, and viticulture is that the work at least you can take some real pleasure from them. So <laughs> cool. Alistair, thanks so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. This was awesome. And I just think it's really cool what you're doing. And I will be looking for the wines now because I'm one of those consumers that wants to buy this stuff too. Um, and we'll put links in, in the show notes as well. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Ag Tech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.